welcome. We have a huge uh, turnout. We're excited. Um, this is the guide dog school update. So we're going to let everybody take about three minutes, maybe five, but no more than five, to tell us what's going on that's new with your school and to talk about anything that you think is important to discuss. Um, I think we should start with leader dog. Is that okay? I just want to tell everybody again that ACB Radio is recording the, this conference for us, and we are so delighted that they're going to do that. And you'll be able to download um, this meeting and all the other meetings, except for the ones that are happening at night, um, pretty quickly. So uh, we're very excited about that. And who's going to talk to us from Leader Dog? Wendy? Can you make your way up to the front? Thanks. <laughs> you thought you would be able to sit down for a minute, but you were wrong. Tell me, tell me your name again. Wendy Eisler. Thank you so much. Let's find out what's going on at Leader Dog. Uh-uh. Sit down. I love two-year-old dogs. Down. Stay. Okay, um, our biggest thing is our new canine development center will be completed by October, we're told, and is fully funded and paid for. So we're excited about that. Um, the new suites have dogs staying together in pairs, kind of nice. 16 years later, now I get lost over there. I can't give a tour anymore. <laughs> um, also of note, we are serving more orientation and mobility clients through our AOM class. We've serviced 85 people this year, plus our kids camp. It was amazing. We are expanding our training into the Chicago area for a week, twice a year, and warm weather training in Florida, because for some reason, nobody wants to come to Michigan in February. <laughs> I don't know why, I don't understand. So we're, we're, we're expanding those programs. Um, in 2014, we hosted a training contingent from one of the schools in Japan to talk about our deaf-blind program. Thanks for helping, Cleo. There we go. And he is also going to be speaking in Spain this year on deaf-blind um, dogs and dog training, so it's very exciting. I think that's about it because we live in construction <laughs> for another couple months. So you'll be ready in a couple months for a new class? The new oh, the classes are continuing. Great. I understand. Thank you so much. Yes. Oh, that's great. You're in the exhibit hall. Can you tell us your booth number and how to get in touch with you? We're booth 57. In the very last row where nobody has been coming to any of us back there. If you're in there at all, they're announcing it. We're, we're the forgotten row. Hey, stop it. Ooh. <laughs> Thank you so much, Wendy. How about Guide Dogs of the Desert? Who's going to talk? Speak for Guide Dogs of the Desert? Thank you. Come 
Can you make your way toward the front of the room? Thank you, Bob. <laughs> this is Bob Windler. Thank you, Bob. How you guys doing out there? Good. Great to see some of the old faces out there, people I've seen. Great to see some of the young faces out there as well. I'm really disappointed there's not a lot of people here from Guide Dogs of the Desert as far as Guide Dog users go. And then I figured it out there back home enjoying that warm desert breeze. That, that warm, warm, warm. It was 127 degrees there the other day, you guys. Yeah, I said 127 degrees. So anyhow, it, it, it's always great to come out here and, and just kind of give you guys uh, uh, a little bit of an update on what's going on at the school, and, and, and not a lot new, okay? Uh, you guys have been here before. We're kind of that little school that, um, that specializes in, um, in, in some unique things. Um, one of those is the poodles, okay? That's, that's kind of uh, our claim to fame right now. Uh, the Labradors are, are still our mainstay, but the standard poodles are becoming more and more popular, and uh, we've been very, very successful with them. We train anywhere from 25 to 30 teams a year. Uh, due to that nice, cool weather that we have in the summer times, we don't hold classes in the summertime in, guide in the desert. So we only hold four classes a year, and our classes are small, uh, working with six clients at a time. So. Um, but out of the 27 dogs that we trained last year, I trained, uh, uh, we, we put out nine poodles for people that wanted the poodles. So uh, we're starting to make a little bit of a, a headway with, with trying to get some more German Shepherds out there as well. Uh, there are people out there that like the Shepherds, uh, so we're still doing German Shepherds. And we finally got one Golden Retriever trained last year. But the good news is, is that we just recently got a grant to uh, go out and purchase some, some Golden Retriever breeding stock. So it's something that we're looking forward to being able to do. So um, anyways, it's, it, it's great. Uh, we do not have a booth. Uh, I feel that I work better on horseback, traveling around and, and seeing what I can do to help you guys out. But uh, we're pretty easy to spot. Uh, we've got the only poodle in the building. So if you see that poodle roaming around, uh, just kind of tackle the guy at the end of the leash and, and you'll figure out uh, that, that you're with Guide Dogs of the Desert. So look us up if you guys have any questions. Uh, we're always here to, uh, to answer those questions for you. Great convention, you guys, great. Thank you, Bob. How about GDF from Long Island?
Am I on? I am on. Good afternoon, everybody. I am Patrick Lyons, and I am from the Guide Dog Foundation in Long Island, New York. Um, one of the first things that I would like to update you guys about is that we have hired two new managerial peoples, um, a devastatingly handsome and intelligent young guide dog program manager. That would be me. And we also brought on a new uh, director of training, who is Brad Hibbard. And both Brad and I spent many, many years working at uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind in Oregon. So we recently, yes, yay, Guide Dogs. Uh, we recently established a pretty cool relationship with the Lighthouse Guild in Manhattan. Um, that was the Jewish Guild and then the Lighthouse for the Blind merge. Uh, one of the great things about that is now they have lots and lots and lots of money. Um, and they are providing a home base for us in Manhattan so we can both train dogs and train clients. So if you come to one of our two-week classes, you get to spend two days in Manhattan, either working the city itself or we're just a block away from Central Park, so you can go work for the park as well if the idea of Manhattan is a little overwhelming to you. Or you can do a day of each. Um, we, another thing that's really exciting that we're starting to move more towards, we have a sister school, America's Vet Dogs, that service dogs for uh, America's veterans. And we're starting to work in combination with one another to train some uh, multidisciplinary service animals. So we can do guide dogs with some service traits or service dogs that have some guide traits. Um, and that's really exciting. It's a cool niche that we're looking into and exploring. Um, and, and more to come. We're still in exploratory phase and, and figuring out how to do that. But we've put a few dogs out already that are cross-trained. We just put one out uh, that was full service and full guide. That was a really cool program. And we're going to be looking a little bit more into that as well. Um, another thing that we've been recently doing, we worked in conjunction with the Seeing Eye, primarily with uh, Ginger Kutch and Lucas Frank. And working with the airports, if you don't know, the TSA has mandated that any airport that serves 100,000 passengers or more is required to put an animal relief area behind security. <laughs> I, love, I love how I have nothing to do with that, yet I got the credit for it. <laughs> um, and the other thing that they're required to do is they're required to work with a service animal organization and help with the design. So uh, myself, Ken Kirst, the director of our service dog program, and Lucas and Ginger from the Seeing Eye have been working with airports in the New York area and beyond to help design and implement um, intuitive, easy to use, as convenient as possible, nothing's convenient in an airport, but uh, relief areas behind security. Um, we just, we just uh, broke ground on the, or excuse me, broke, uh, cut the ribbon for JFK Terminal 4, and it's up and running. We had a dog there that um, <coughs> christened it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, a, that's another really cool thing that we've been doing. So that will be it for me, and I thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of your stay. This is also my 21 years in this industry. This is my first uh, convention, so I'm super happy to be here. Wow, well, we are so glad you found us. Um, what's your booth number? Oh, hey. Sorry. So, 
I am my own mobile booth, so uh, I do not have a physical booth. I am the only one here representing the foundation. So I'm um, like Bob. I'm out and about all the time. So you'll you'll find me. You can't miss me, even if you try. Thank you. I'm sure people want to talk to you about the airport relief areas. We had a few complaints about them, actually. So um, we'll tell people to find you. Uh, <laughs> Guide Dogs of America. Guide Dogs of America, GDA. These are in no particular order. They're just how I wrote them down. <laughs> guys, I'm Caitlin Smith, uh, instructor at Guide Dogs of America, Southern California. Just a couple updates for you. We are currently halfway through building our new uh, visitor and education center. We're going to use that for uh, class, for discussions, and also educating our puppy raisers, doing seminars and things for our puppy raisers. Uh, we also, starting in January of 2017, we're going to five classes a year three weeks each. We have 10 students per class. Uh, those, uh, we also have a few new additions to our school. An apprentice named Alejandra, she is a former puppy raiser. And then a new client service manager, if any of you guys know Andy Caruso, she retired for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> a new kennel manager as well. And then we're just uh, looking for a puppy department position, just opened up a new puppy department position. And big news is our president, Dale Hartford, is retiring at the end of the year. So we're going to be getting a new president at the end of the year. That's all for me. Oh, booth number eight. Thank you so much. How about Eric from Fidelco? And your cute German Shepherd doggy that you have with you. That'll wake Willow up. <laughs> All right, I am Eric Gardell, trainer instructor for Fidelco Guide Dog Foundation. Um, a few things. Uh, one, we changed our logo this year. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty exciting for office staff. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, we also opened up um, an office in Wilton, Connecticut, um, which is right on the New York border, so we're kind of near guiding eyes uh, area right now. We are not housing dogs there. We just have our offices, um, some of our offices there. Uh, this is our, <coughs> you guys probably have heard of it, but this is our fourth year, I believe, for a kid's summer camp at Fidelco, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, we bring in dogs. We bring in canine dogs from local police uh, um, corrections and we search and rescue dogs come in just about every dog that has a job we've come in shown the kids and of course uh, they've gotten to see all our dogs and learn how to groom and clean our kennels that's fun <coughs> yeah yeah pay all that money to clean our kennels huh? so uh, one thing uh, and a lot of people have been asking me and when asking me what I've been doing and where I'm going and they're surprised at how far we're going so just the let everybody know again, we are going all over the U.S. Um, we do have two trainers that are licensed in California, finally. <laughs> um, and I believe that is about it. Thank you.
Oh, and we do not have a booth. Oh, German Shepherd Dogs, asked by our one Fidelco German Shepherd handler in, here in the house. Rebby would be proud. Um, GBB? There's lots of you. You can only talk for five minutes. Booth 25. Booth 25. <laughs> uh, I'm Darren Walsh, and I'm going to start by talking about some new additions to our campus. <laughs> so on the San Rafael campus at Guide Dogs for the Blind in California, we are about to break ground on a new puppy center uh, that's going to be more modern and give our, our, our puppies the, the best chance for success in their health and their young careers. And it will also bring in um, chances for our, having our puppies on display uh, for tours and folks who are coming in. We've also hired uh, a new apprentice program manager. Her name is Amy Gunn. She's operating off of the Oregon campus. Uh, and to go along with that, we have a, a I can't tell you how many, and we probably have 10 brand new apprentices in the program right now, so we're staffing up, and that's great to hear. Um, Lauren? Hey, it's Lauren Ross, and uh, I will tell you what's going on in the field. We have two new field managers, so there's now eight field managers covering the U.S. and Canada, and internationally beyond Canada, for Guide Dogs for the Blind. Um, since I'm representing from the field, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know who everyone is. So on the East Coast, we've got Will Henry, <laughs> which a lot of you probably know from his days at Seeing Eye and Leader. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have him. And then there is Chuck Ferruja, who's based in Michigan, covering that area of the country. We've got Bill Archie in Tennessee, myself in Chicago. And then we've got Michelle Clyborne, who is our, our other new field manager. She's based in the Denver area, covering the Mountain States. And then over on the West Coast and Pacific Northwest, we've got Charles Nathan up in the Seattle area. And we've got Keith Tomlinson down in Southern California. And Jim Power in the uh, Northern California area. So that's the field. I'm going to hand it over to Mark. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Darren. So um, news uh, I want to bring to you guys first is that you may uh, be familiar with this name, pioneer of our industry, Michelle Pouliot. And Michelle just retired after 42 years of service in the guide dog industry. To send Michelle out with such, uh, with such honor that she deserves, recently there was an IGDF seminar held in Havar, Croatia, beautiful island off the coast of the Croatian mainland. And every two years, there is a special award named the Ken Lord Award, which is given to someone who basically has made an extraordinary contribution to the guide dog movement. And Michelle won that award this year for everything she's contributed. So a big round of applause for Michelle. And the good news is Michelle will still remain active. She might be retired, but she's still going to be doing a lot of consultancy work. And I'm sure uh, she's not done just yet. Um, another piece of news from Guide Dogs, our new website is almost uh, through its testing phase. We're very excited about that. 
and uh, it's going to be a fantastic, fully accessible website. I can guarantee you that. Uh, both for people who are totally blind and those that have low vision or residual vision. There's been a lot of beta testing going on with staff and constituents to make sure it's accessible. So we're very excited about that. And finally, for myself, I've had a bit of a job change at Guide Dogs. I'm now the Orientation Mobility Services Specialist. And what I'm charged to do is to actually develop new programs to help people get those all-important O&M skills in order to help qualify them for a guide dog because there is a dearth of O&M services across the country. We know that it's getting increasingly difficult for some folks to get O&M training, so we're going to try and do something to help that. So thank you. Thank you. Um, how about Guiding Eyes for the Blind? Is that you, Becky? Hi, everyone. It's Becky Davidson from Guiding Eyes. And um, we are in booth number 43, next to Triumph Technologies. It has one of the best um, portable speakers I've ever heard. Anyway, <coughs> anyway, um, Guiding Eyes is still doing three-week classes. And uh, we still have our special needs program, as well as options for both home training and home and away training. Um, probably, well, our new canine development center, our newly renovated canine development center opened last year. Um, and I've been up there once, and it, without help, I would never have returned. It's very, it's very cool, but it's also, <laughs> it's quite a bit bigger. The puppies love it, however, and that's the important thing. We are still doing primarily Labrador retrievers, but we continue to breed German Shepherds and place them. Um, probably the two biggest pieces of news that, that I can think of telling you are, first of all, Guiding Eyes has um, developed a running guide program, and it's primarily for guide dog handlers who want to be able to run for fitness and health, not necessarily marathons or anything like that. Um, but the idea is that when we are assessing a an applicant and they indicate they're interested in the program, when we match them with the dog, we want to match them with a dog that has the potential um, to have that fast pace. They have them, we have them come in and train as a guide dog handler first, um, make sure all of that is in place and working well, and then if they want to be considered for the running dog program, they may come back for a few days um, and work with um, an instructor and a part-time instructor who's an avid runner who's been training, who works with training these dogs to actually run with in harness. Um, the intent is not for races or anything like that. The intent is primarily for people who want to run um, for health and fitness in their neighborhood. Um, and there are, you know, there are some limits as to how long they should be running with their dogs and so on. Totally voluntary. Um, we have already had quite a bit of interest in it. Um, we've had a couple of retirements of names that might be familiar to some of you. Michael Medier, who was our West Coast represented representative, field representative, retired last year. And also um, our longtime admissions manager, Bev Clayman, retired the end of May. And um, the other thing is that next April we are hosting uh, our graduate council. We have a graduate council that acts as a liaison between the grad community and the school and also did they do all the exit interviewing. But this, this next April, the Graduate Council has spearheaded a um, program that we're running along with our training department. And it's a continuing education seminar for our graduates. And they'll come in. We have a 
a resort that we're going to have it at, and everybody's it's we're not paying for everybody to come, but um, people are raising money and and going to come and get updates on all kinds of training techniques, uh, targeting, uh, as well as other aspects of the guide dog school. So we're very excited about it. Um, it's the end of April. And I think that's pretty much it for, for me for Guiding Eyes. Um, again, we're booth number 43. And my colleagues Miranda and um, Kara and Mike are here. And then you'll be hearing from our field rep, Mike Gehring, later this afternoon. And uh, seeing eye, is that you, Chelsea? Okay, from the seeing eye. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Chelsea White again. Um, most of our staff introduced themselves, um, but Nicole Murray is also here with us. She's not currently in the room. Um, she's also, while she's doing double duty while she's here, not only is she here at the convention, but she's also doing a home placement here in the Minneapolis area. So she's here, but, but not really. <laughs> um, we are, before I forget, we are booth 19 in the exhibit hall, so come by and say hello. Um, let's see, new stuff at Seeing Eye. Uh, we fairly recently acquired a 14-passenger bus uh, for two purposes. One, so that folks don't have to hang out in the downtown training center when they're done with their trip in town. If you want to go back to main campus, you can. So we're shuttling people back and forth. But the main purpose of it is to give folks experience on those 14 passenger buses that a lot of handy ride services use. Um, or met metro, metro services. Paratransit. Thank you. Golly, hello. Ah. Um, <laughs> But to, to get folks, people and dogs used to those buses with the wheelchair ramp, wheelchair lifts, um, the noise and stuff that they make and, and all of that. So that is one of the new things that we have acquired. Um, this year was our second year to hold a two-week retrain class. Um, it is a two-week class, like it says, um, and only for retrains. Um, and it's, it's a very, very fast-paced class, and we absolutely have to make sure that we have the right dog um, for people coming into class because making a switch during class would be very, very difficult. Folks get their dogs the day they come into class, and you hit the ground running. So, but we did that again this year, and it was very successful. We have eight students in a class, one instructor for every two students, and most of the instructors that participate in that class are class supervisors. So, um, lots of you might recognize the name Sue McCahill. Um, Sue, Sue retired just a couple of months ago after 30 years in the guide dog field. Um, some of you might also recognize the name Doug Bull. Um, Doug also is going to be retiring later on this year after 30 years in the field. Um, there's all these old people retiring. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, <coughs> I'm becoming one of those old people. Um, <laughs> because of, of all the retirements and such over the last couple of years, we, we too have um, a plethora of new apprentice instructors. 
Um, two of which um, we've hired fairly recently are orientation and mobility instructors. So we now have four O&M um, and guide dog mobility instructors on our staff. Um, Jim Kessler, who has prior been known as a class supervisor, was uh, just promoted to assistant director of training, basically. Um, so he is in charge of the class supervisors and um, grad assistant type stuff on the road. So if you have a problem, um, he'll probably be the person that you talk to at this point. Um, so his position started a couple of months ago. And that is pretty much it from us. Again, we're booth 19. So come by and say hi. Oh, most everybody know about the cats. <laughs> <laughs> what, what Vicki is referring to is um, about a year or so ago, we acquired two cats um, who basically roam the main part of the building. Um, they are free to run so that when you are in class getting your dogs, um, you, you will have cat distraction. Um, when you're walking down to dinner or heading out for a trip or any of those kinds of things. Um, and, and for those of you who haven't been back in a while, um, anytime you're in the main part of the building, make sure you look before you sit. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Chelsea. We have about um, 10 minutes left in this session. And so if anyone has a burning question, um, I would like to hear it and then um, maybe um, anybody from any of the schools who wishes to answer, if you would take about a minute or a minute and a half to answer the question, that would be super. Does anyone have a question? Okay. Someone needs to be on the mic. Is that you, Charlie? Hi, it's Charlie Crawford. And uh, the question I have is the perennial one. Um, what's happening with Roundabout? Well, they just keep going round and round, you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, this is Lucas Frank, from seeing I have been involved in uh, roundabout research and for solutions to this. Just to back this up a little bit, uh, roundabouts are uh, an intersection design that's ver that is very popular in Europe uh, and other places around the world. They are not the same as the famous uh, suicidal Boston rotaries, <laughs> uh, but they are circular intersections. And they are—they're very popular in Europe. They have been slowly but increasingly uh, coming to the United States. How many of you? Now, I'm not counting your Boston Rotaries now. How many of you have have dealt with a roundabout type intersection? Let's give a single clap. Okay. And <coughs> have you uh, uh, have your experiences been successful, or have you found them terribly challenging? <laughs> terribly challenging. Some. There's a range out there. Roundabouts don't come in a single flavor. They, uh, <coughs> they, there are single lane roundabouts and multiple lane roundabouts. 
Single lane roundabouts seem to be quite manageable most of the time. Multiple lane roundabouts much more difficult. Uh, and there was a uh, research project that was done um, over the last several years by the National Academies of Science, the uh, and <coughs> the looking at solutions for people who are blind or visually impaired for access to roundabouts, and not just roundabouts, but also what are called channelized turn lanes, those huge intersections where you have to cross a single lane to get to an island to cross a major roadway. Because the problems that people face in, at channelized uh, turn lanes are very similar in some ways to the problems that people face in roundabouts. And <coughs> the, uh, the research project, which was recently concluded, uh, there, are, there obviously are not perfect solutions. Uh, but there are things that can be done to improve access, and there are different parts of access. One is figuring out where to cross. Sometimes that can be extremely difficult at a roundabout. Uh, another piece of the problem is when to cross, particularly the exit lanes, because, excel because cars accelerate out of those exit lanes. And one of the solutions is to create what are called raised crosswalks or tabled, tabled crosswalks because they encourage the yielding behavior of vehicles. Uh, and so you get much greater yielding. Another part of the solution is uh, what are called rectangular rapid flashing beacons that are push-button controlled devices that you can press. And it's not, does, it's not like a red, yellow, green stop, or a, but it does flash to let drivers know that there's a pedestrian in crossing. Uh, and all uh, these solutions in alone or in combination have uh, increased the accessibility and safety at roundabouts to a really significant degree, but I don't believe that we will stop, be able to stop roundabouts coming because they save lives. Uh, believe it or not, okay, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that at roundabout intersections, pedestrian, fatali uh, pedestrian fatalities are in general very, very low and vehicular fatalities almost drop to zero. So you're not going to get rid of them. It's just a question of designing them well and making them accessible. So that's, that's where that is at the moment. Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> it's the best I can do. Um, the question I have is, I just came out of Terminal 4 and I asked someone where that brake area was so that I could brake my dog and no one knew. Where did they put it? Where is the, has anybody seen the relief area at Terminal 4? <laughs> Oh, JFK. There we go. Thank you. Um, did anyone have an answer? I'm sorry. Um, we, we had a complaint yesterday about the airport relief areas, which was that the area was covered with something like AstroTurf uh, with a plastic fire hydrant in the middle. And um, when the person bent down to pick up after his dog, he bumped his head on the fire hydrant. And there was apparently a sign which said, press this button to clean the relief area. But if you can't see the sign, you don't know about it. So um, does anybody know if that's being addressed? 
No, it was, um, I don't know where it was. But I've, I've encountered that at Dulles, so I know it's not just one airport. I was just, this is Sue, Sue Crawford, I was just going to clarify the one in Minneapolis um, that Charlie referred to. Actually, a lot, a part of it is just a really ingenious design. It is some kind of an astroturf, and, um, and when the dog does number one, and then you can push a button, and somehow it just kind of like irrigates it, flushes it. It's really cool. And then they have the mutt mitts there that you can pick up um, the, uh, you know, the number twos. Um, it did have a fire hydrant uh, in the middle, which I thought was ingenious, but not real practical. Uh, but I, I give them credit for the design. So I'm, I'm not, sh I'm not, yeah, it, I'm not sure if, um, I'm not sure that anybody would find it if they weren't with, um, it, it's in the secure perimeter, within the secure perimeter. So I'm not sure one would even find it without assistance, sighted assistance to begin with. No, it's inside. It's inside the secure. We will use one that was inside. It was. In the American terminal, it's inside because I went there the other day. And it was this. I mean, it, it, it really smelled bad. My dog wouldn't go anywhere near it. I don't blame him. I wouldn't go near it. So it was, uh, it was, and I guess they needed Minneapolis because of the winters. I don't know. This is Maria, and I have a suggestion for push the button. If they could do a lo locator tone like we have on our accessible pedestrian signals in New York. I think we maybe have come to the end of this session. I want to thank every school who sent representatives and spent time with us. We really appreciate it. Everybody go to exhibits and visit the schools and, uh, you know, be specific about, bring them, show, show off your dogs and what a great job they're doing. Um, I think the next session is supposed to start at 3.30. And what time is it now? Oh, maybe it's 2.40. Yeah, maybe it's 2.30. So is Lillian around? Because I don't have a copy of the program in front of me. So it. It's a panel discussion. Um, the students are teaming with us, and they're gonna. No. Thank you. I don't know what I'm doing. It's Uber. Uber is next. I'm definitely here for that. Um, Willow, come. Willow, come. Willow, come. And what time does it start, Lillian? 2.40. And what time is it now? So we have 15 minutes, am I right? Uh, we went over, I'm sorry. So it's Uber here already? Or it's the speaker here already? I know it's not Uber. So, and okay, we'll do door prizes now. So wait a minute, before we get started with the next session, 
think we're going to do door prizes? Okay. Yes. I can't hear you. What am I going to announce about the Atlanta airport? Do you want to make an announcement about Atlanta? Okay. Um, could someone take her the microphone? Um, who is it who wants to talk about Atlanta? Oh. Who wants to talk about Atlanta? Oh, I see. I see. Since, this is Betsy Grinovich. Since we are on the airport discussion, I want to thank those of you who did take time to answer the survey for Recondo. They are working on six indoor relief areas, one on each concourse. GGDU will have an active part in getting to tour those airports. We also had an active part in giving input along with those who filled out his survey. They will be finished sometime in August, and we will go do the review and let you know the results. Okay, you can go ahead and take a break now. Be back in the room at 2.45 for door prizes and um, the next workshop. Caitlin, are you here, Caitlin Magillo? Can you come up toward the front of the room, please? Thanks for coming all this way. 
would you prefer to not say it yourself? You're comfortable introducing yourself? Yeah. Okay. As long as that's all right for you. Yeah. Um, and what's your time on here? And then I figured, I figured we would do, if it's okay with you, I can make sure you're comfortable. Um, I figured we could talk for like 20, 25 minutes and then we'll take like 10 minutes of questions or something. Do you, are you comfortable with that?
have, according to my schedule, you guys go till four, right? Yeah. And then what other things have you got going this week that you want to That's my dog. Who is this? I'm Larry Kermode. Oh, I didn't know you had a dog. Oh, yeah. Where's your dog from? He's from Southeast Guy Dog. Oh, what kind? Of, oh, in Florida. What kind He's is he? Black Lab. Oh, okay. He's a big one. He's about 93 pounds. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I, my first dog Fantasia was 75. This one's almost 100. Maria, are you still here? <laughs>
Is everyone ready for the door prize drawings? Yeah? Everybody have a card. If you don't have a card, a brailled playing card, raise your hand. 
Okay, keep your hands up till somebody comes back. Yes. Okay, make sure you keep those cards. Do not lose them. If you lose it, then you lose door prizes. We'll, we'll use them at every single meeting that GDUI has and then turn them in at the luncheon on Wednesday. If you leave early, turn it in to somebody in the suite, and we can use them again next year. Okay, are you guys ready? All right, card number one. Card number one, eight of diamonds. Woo! We have a winner. All right, are you ready? Two of spades. Two of spades. Uh-oh, we have a trend going on. These people are sitting at the same table. All right, five of hearts. Five of hearts. Going, going, gone. Uh-oh, we have another joker. Does anybody have a joker? <clears throat> All right, we have a winner. All right, four of diamonds, four of diamonds. We have a winner in the back of the room. Eight of spades. Do we have an eight of spades? Going once, eight of spades, it's gone. All right, seven of clubs. Seven of clubs. All right. Five of diamonds. We have a winner. We have a winner. All right. Melvin in the back. Melvin, hey! I'll put these back in for next winter.
Institute. Okay, thank you all. Next meeting, more door prizes. You need the mic, right? Hi, everybody. Um, this is the uh, Your Right to Ride Uber Lyft and Your Guide Dog. Um, oh, sorry. I'm Caitlin Mangillo. I'm part of the programs committee. Um, so we're here for Uber, Lyft, and your guide dog, uh, your right to ride. And we are very fortunate to have Ms. Julia Marks, who works with the Disability Rights Advocates in Berkeley, California. So thank you for coming all this way. Um, Julia is a fellowship attorney. She joined DRA in 2014 after completing her JD at Berkeley Law, Bolt Hall. Um, Julia also received her bachelor's degree in 2009 from Dartmouth. She is um, an attorney in the state of California, and she is through the United States District <laughs> Court District of Northern California, and I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. So Julia, Julia and DRA have been doing a ton of great work with ride-sharing services, and she's going to educate us on that for quite a bit, and we'll take some questions, but here's Julia. Great. Thank you so much, Kaylin. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, good. Um, so I'm Julia. I'm from Disability Rights Advocates. Um, and for the past couple years, I've been working a lot on the case that we brought against Uber Technologies about access to transportation on the Uber system by uh, people who are blind and who use guide dogs. Um, so I wanted to talk mostly about that case today because it's the only big case of its nature in the country. So the precedent that we're trying to set there should have far-reaching effects, both geographically, it should affect everyone across the country, um, and it can hopefully be a model so other companies that also provide similar services will do some of the things that um, Uber is going to have to do under the case um, to discrimination in the system. Um, so I just wanted to make a brief statement first about uh, my position and DRA's position and interpretation of the law about what your legal rights are when you are um, trying to get a ride on a platform like Uber. So um, as you probably, most of you know, Uber connects riders with drivers through an app and its software connects the two people and Uber controls the payment. They tell you when you've been assigned a driver, they tell you when the driver is coming, they tell you how far it is, um, and then they process it all at the end. And so that's really could be very beneficial because it's predictable in a way taxis might not be and sometimes it's cheaper. Um, but unfortunately, as many of you know, a lot of drivers have been refusing to take people who are traveling with service dogs. Um, occasionally, the drivers will drive up to the passenger and talk to the person and say, I'm not taking you, you have a service dog. Um, but also, we've heard a lot of stories of people who've just been waiting and then the app says your driver arrived and then the app says your driver canceled and people have to call again and they don't even have the interaction to um, validate the experience. So, we've heard from people across the country about this happening. And we believe that is in clear violation of the ADA. The ADA says you can't 
We can't deny service in public transportation or in a place of public accommodation like a movie theater or restaurant or in our view also Uber. You can't deny service just because someone is traveling um, with a service animal. Um, you also can't charge people for having that service animal with them. So to the extent drivers are charging uh, cleaning fees um, to passengers because they had a dog in the car, that would also violate the ADA. Um, both under the section about public accommodations and the section about um, public transportation because it covers transportation by private entities as well as by public entities. So uh, Uber is a private company and they provide transit to the general public, so they're covered. Um, we also believe it's not just the individual drivers who are responsible, but Uber itself. Yeah, so um, we approached Uber in 2014 asking them to negotiate with us to come up with a solution to this, um, and they refused, and so we brought a lawsuit against them um, under the ADA and under state law. A lot of states have parallel laws. Some of them also provide for monetary damages, so you can recover something financially for the discrimination you suffered. Our case does not deal with that. We're only seeking the policy uh, changes. So if you have discrimination that you've experienced, you're separate from our case, you can pursue um, something under state law if you choose. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so um, I can, I was, that fits well with where I am. So, um, so there are a couple arguments that Uber could make and has tried to make in certain parts of our case uh, that that makes a difference, that it's their own car, or that it makes a difference that Uber's a technology platform um, and therefore it's not a transportation service. So we think that argument does not fly. <laughs> and will not be successful. Um, in terms of the private ownership of vehicle issue, uh, in the public accommodation section of the ADA, there's special language explaining that if you open your private residence to the public, like if you have an office that's attached to your living room, the parts of your private space that you've opened to the public do fall within the requirements of the ADA. And we think that the driver car situation is analogous to that. So if you have turned your private vehicle into a place that's open to the public for the provision of services, then you can't claim it's private space anymore. It's part of that public service. Um, so in our case, we didn't proceed to a point where the judge had to make a final ruling about that. Um, so there's not a case, there's not a court decision out there that agrees with that position, but we did have some argu argument before the judge with Uber, um, and what was really helpful is the Department of Justice chimed in to state that the position of the United States, who you know created the ADA, is that the section of the ADA about transportation services does completely apply to Uber. Um, so while that's not 100% binding, the fact that the U.S. government went out of their way to step into our case and say um, Uber has to follow the ADA like other transportation service providers without making special exceptions about private cars, this, technology platform, that. 
the fact that government said that makes any cases going forward have something very strong to cite to that says um, people have to comply with the ADA and have to let people who use service animals into these spaces the way they should be let into a movie theater or a shopping mall. Yeah, so, so as I alluded to, we did litigate some of the issues. We went to the judge and argued about some of those things, um, and the Department of Justice agreed that Uber is covered. Um, and once that happened, Uber decided to come to the table for settlement. So uh, we came, uh, we spent about a year and a half, a year negotiating with them. A big thank you to anyone here, anyone you know who took the time to talk to us. It was really helpful to have the record of the community experiences to shape the settlement agreement that we came up to uh, with Uber. Um, and so I want to quickly note the settlement is not in place yet. So if anything I'm about to say sounds like out of alignment with what you've been experiencing, it's because the settlement hasn't started. Um, and that's for some procedural issues I'll get to at the end. Um, but I wanted to talk through the content and the changes Uber is going to make um, that we believe will take um, hopefully will really decrease the amount of discrimination we're seeing by drivers. So the first uh, component is coverage. So this is a nationwide settlement and it should apply for any blind or visually disabled person who uses a guide dog and who uses the um, Uber platform. So that's across the country. Um, and the first key thing we wanted Uber to improve and that they've agreed to improve is driver education. So in the contract between drivers and Uber, um, it says that Uber has that Uber drivers have to take people with guide dogs. They aren't allowed to do discriminatory denials, um, and it explains that there are disciplinary uh, responses for failure to do that, and uh, says what they actually are. So this is much more detail than Uber currently provides to drivers in its contract. Um, we all know, though, that people don't always read contracts, so that's just the first thing. Um, Uber's also going to send quarterly emails, and they're going to be more thorough and include photos, like this is what a guide dog looks like. You have to take this guide dog. Um, new drivers, when they go through the onboarding process, there's going to be a screen that also announces that you have to take, you have to take guide dogs, and here are the disciplinary consequences. Um, and most importantly, what we think will really make a difference is that all drivers, both new and old, um, will have to go through a series of pop-ups in their app. So there will be a day where they try to log in and before they're allowed to be assigned rides, they have to go through a number of screens that lay out the policy and then additionally quiz the driver on what the policy is. And this includes the fact that you're not only do you have to take the guide dogs, but that allergies are not an excuse, and religion is not an excuse, and a generalized fear of dogs is not an excuse. And Uber has made that its official policy and stated it in a policy document, and that will be part of this in-app driver education component. Additionally, education only gets you so far um, if drivers think there are consequences to failure to comply with the policy. So uh, Uber will be more strict going forward. If they receive a report and it's clear that the driver 
knew the person had a guide dog and denied service for that reason. The driver is automatically terminated permanently. Um, if it's not clear what happened, but there's a report of discrimination and investigation, it's still kind of unclear, then they get like a check in their file. And if it happens again, it's presumed that they know what they're doing and that they're discriminating. So it's kind of a one-two strike policy. Um, and that also will be written out in the policy that drivers see and customers see. So you know your rights and drivers know the consequences. Um, Uber's also committing they'll investigate every report that comes in. We've been hoping they're already doing that, but just in case they're not, it's gonna be in writing. Um, and the customer, um, there's the policy that faces customers and drivers, and there's also an internal policy and workflow they're creating to make sure that all these complaints are processed and that they're following through both on the customer side and the driver side internally. We don't wanna see complaints come in and then just fall through the cracks. Um, on the customer service side, Uber has agreed to make it easier to file complaints. So it'll take fewer click-throughs on your screen if something does happen to reach a point where you can report that something happened. They've also committed to putting on the homepage of their website a link that says, I want to report a service animal issue. So that should be a lot easier than having to navigate through the app. Um, also now those complaint forms are specialized to service animal issues. So that'll flag for Uber when a complaint comes in, they'll, they'll know immediately that it has to do with service animals and so hopefully that'll also prevent complaints from kind of getting lost in the customer service world. Um, additionally, the homepage for the Uber website will have a link to the new service animal policy. So you can read that there and or um, you'll have an access a version you can access quickly just to kind of reaffirm your rights under Uber's new policies. Um, additionally, customer service will try to respond within a week if they receive a complaint from you. Um, and they will reverse any cancellation charges. Um, they will not block drivers from passengers unless the passenger requests it. So if you live in an area where there aren't very many drivers and you're worried that submitting a complaint um, will take that person out of rotation and you're not sure that they actually discriminated but you're concerned, you can report something without losing that driver. But if you don't wanna have to deal with that driver again, you can also tell them that and it gives the choice to you rather than to the company about if you wanna be matched with them again. Um, so those are the core substance components. Oh, also cleaning fees. They can't charge cleaning fees for routine shedding. Um, you can be charged uh, for um, a bodily fluids issue, but only if it's the third one. So the first couple times uh, you get a pass, or the dog gets a pass. <laughs> um, um, so those are the substantive terms. And then uh, there are a number of things in the settlement to make sure that it works, um, because we think these things will help decrease discrimination, but uh, no one can predict the future, and we wanna be sure that it works once it's signed. So um, Uber will be reporting data on all of the complaints it receives, on the drivers it receives complaints about, um, on passenger ratings. We wanna make sure that passengers aren't getting rated poorly for having guide dogs. Um, so all of that will be provided both to the, uh, the attorneys and to a third party monitor 
who will be in place for the duration of the settlement to check in on Uber, go through the data, and make sure that the levels of discrimination are actually decreasing. Um, if you're concerned, that will be anonymized, so no passenger or driver names will be released, but we'll be able to code them to kind of follow up on issues and make sure that uh, the settlement is being accurately implemented. Um, we're also going to send out testers, so people with guide dogs, to just make sure that drivers are complying with the new policy and the law. Um, and the monitoring, testing, and data recovery will be in place for three and a half years, so we'll have a while to make sure um, it's succeeding. And if it's actually looking like it's not succeeding, we have the opportunity to extend the time period even further. Um, and there's a provision that we can request additional changes. Um, either the plaintiffs or the independent monitor can go to Uber and say, for the following reasons, we don't think this is working well enough, and here are some proposed changes. And they're obligated to have that conversation with us. So that's the settlement in substance. Um, I noted that it's not in place, and that's because it's a class action. Um, and that means the case is brought on behalf of a whole group of people, and this is all people nationwide who use guide dogs and Uber. Um, and because it applies to that large group, the court needs to have an opportunity to decide that it's fair and to give anyone in the group a chance to tell the court if they don't think it's fair because they're bound to it. Um, so. The court is looking at the settlement now, and hopefully in the next couple weeks, we'll give a preliminary okay. And then over the summer, anyone who the, the case applies to, the settlement applies to, um, can go to a website we're posting, or um, you'll also get the announcement through the ACB and NFB digital publications and Braille publications in the next few months if this posts. Um, and then you have a chance, if you think it's a terrible settlement, you can tell the court that. If you like it, you don't have to say anything. <laughs> um, and if you like it generally, but there are a couple issues, um, unfortunately, there's not really a space in the process for that. It's kind of a yes or no type situation. Um, so uh, if enough people object and the court thinks that the community doesn't like it, then the whole thing gets thrown out. So um, that's... That's the process that is delaying it starting. It's a fairness issue, and it's a chance to make sure everyone gets to read it and think about it, and if they want to talk to me about it, you're welcome to. Um, and then in November or December, the court will go through all of that, confirm it happened, and decide whether to start the settlement or not. So it could start in December. Yeah. yeah. The, the legal process is a little slow. <laughs> but <laughs> there we go. Um, and so how you guys can help is when, when hopefully that does come out, like please read through it so you know uh, what, what rights you have under the settlement. Um, and also please reach out to me at DRA and my other colleagues if you continue to experience discrimination because even once the settlement's in place, we want to be sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do. And we'll get data from Uber, but we also want to get data from the community, just just to double check, you know, more information is usually better. Um, and then a quick note, just other things at DRA that we're working on related to um, access for blind people to new services in this changing technological time. 
Um, we did some work on Netflix. Hopefully some of you have enjoyed its uh, audio description services recently. So we've been looking at both audio description and ensuring screen reader accessibility. Um, and so we're looking at some of the other online video services such as Hulu. So if you have any feedback on that, also please reach out to me. Um, so I will open it for questions. Okay. Do you want the mic? So I have a question. Um, well, first of all, will you send us a copy of the settlement so we can put it in our magazine, which is called Paul Tracks? Um, okay. Okay, we'll put it on our website. And uh, my other question is, I have heard that when Uber drivers get disciplined for not picking up service dogs, they simply go over to Lyft. Are you doing anything with Lyft? Yes, so we are currently in discussions with Lyft. Um, unfortunately, I can't provide much more detail, uh, but I can say that going through this process with Uber has created a pretty good framework that um, hopefully other companies will be following. Hi, it's oh, oh, sorry. Hi, it's Denise from Washington D.C. Thanks for your presentation. I was wondering. I've had Uber drivers who have basically given me the ride from hell. They've said, you know, well, I wouldn't take you, but I have to take you, so I'm going to take you and your dog. Um, and it's my understanding that that is not permitted either. Can you um, can you address that? Um, yeah, so there's not a specific clause in the settlement agreement that has to do with that, but it is against Uber policy to have drivers mistreat customers for discriminatory reasons. Um, that's definitely the type of thing where you should report it both to Uber and to me or other attorneys working on the case. Um, because I could see that being something, if we're hearing it's really ongoing, particularly once drivers who would have once denied a ride are now providing it, but begrudgingly, um, if that's the type of problem that we see actually growing, we might have to think about adding some training components about that. Lucas, um, Lucas Frank, I have a question really quickly. I, I had to leave the room for a while, and you may have addressed this, so I won't ask you to repeat it. But uh, I've taken two rides with Uber in the last uh, two weeks or three weeks, one in uh, Washington, D.C., from downtown out to Dallas, and one in uh, Lubbock, Texas, to a bar. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, in, in both cases, I asked uh, uh, the driver how they got involved with Uber and what type of training materials they had received in regard to this question. And one of them was a very recent uh, Uber uh, member, had just recently signed up, was very happy with the company overall, had received absolutely no training materials on this topic. And I just wonder, uh, is it, did you already address this? Is this something that's in plan? Uh, I did address it. Short answer is the settlement's not in place yet, and that will be training as part of it. 
Also, a quick note, because we might not get through everyone. I'll leave some of my business cards, maybe with Kaylin, if that's OK. OK, so you can all follow up with me after also. Hi, um, Julia, you were talking about guide dogs and people accompanied by guide dogs. Sometimes you were using the term service animals or whatever. Does, does this agreement strictly apply to blind people being covered with their guide dogs? Do Uber drivers have to take other types of service animals, dogs, or other species? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So the settlement only covers blind and visually disabled people with service dogs. So in theory, a blind person might have a different type of service dog than a guide dog, and they would be covered. Um, it doesn't cover people with different types of disabilities. Um, but the way we have worked with Uber to have them draft their policy, it's not disability specific, and it's not service animal type specific. So um, while it's not enforceable under the settlement, which only covers blind users, um, the goal is that the language in the policies applies more broadly. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to let you know that in New York, I did have the opportunity to take Uber once with my now retired guide dog. And the driver did tell me that they received training in New York City. So I don't know if New York is ahead of the curve or whatnot. But there's another uh, taxi company uh, called Get, that G-E-T-T, -T, that's also in New York. And um, I don't know if they're included with all of this when you expand to Lyft, you know, because I think they're pretty small. What's that? Oh, and uh, about the Netflix. I, uh, I notice I do have Netflix on my iPhone. And it's not totally accessible. So is that, uh, that going to be worked on also with the Netflix to make the, uh, the app more accessible? OK. Um, so I'm glad to hear some people have training. And we haven't looked into Get, but feel free to talk to me after. Um, and Netflix has a deadline of the end of this year for its app accessibility, but we'd love to hear positive or negative experiences you've had going forward just to make sure they're on track. So. I'm Peggy Madrid from Irvine, California. And I have eight complaints filed with Uber. I, and all of them happened in Irvine, California. And uh, Hannah seems to be the one that answers all of the complaints. It's always Hannah, no matter if it's a guy, girl, or what. <laughs> and I've got the same canned answers. You know, we're, lo we're working on it. Well, well they'll be uh, suspended. And then if they do it again, we're going to terminate them. And the same driver has refused me three times. So. And I also have a question. Is this suit involved with the one, uh, the settlement with NSB, or is that totally separate? Uh, 
Okay, so uh, the second question, this is the same case. Yeah, it's the only big guide dog use case. Um, and then the eight complaints in Irvine. So um, current policy is kind of fluid in a way that would allow what you've been experiencing, which is what the settlement's trying to fix. Under the settlement, um, there's no way you'd have, if you'd submitted three complaints about one driver, they would have be been gone after number two. And then, um, you know, they might still use somewhat canned responses, but under the settlement, you have a right to be told what happened to the driver, and so you would be able to push them on that and get that information from them. There are people all over the room dying to ask questions. <laughs> Thank you. I have a question that's a little broader, um, and that is this kind of problem seems to be endemic when it comes to shared economy style businesses. And I can just, a brief story about a condo um, resort. We rented a condo a few years back. Um, they had a no pets policy, but they do rent to the public. These folks own their own condos and when they're not there, they rent them out. It's not an Airbnb, but kind of. And um, there was only one unit that allowed pets. That happened to be a veterinarian. So my question is, this opens up, this suit opens up possibilities, it would seem to me, for other businesses as well that choose not to serve people whatever their situation may be, whether it's race, ethnicity, disability, or such. Um, I agree. <laughs> uh, the sharing economy is, uh, it's a large space and it'll probably be growing in terms of how many companies use that model. Um, and until the federal government can go in and actually update regulations and law. <laughs> oh, excellent, okay. Um, well, to the extent uh, they apply to transportation sharing economy, um, they haven't been updated, but hopefully this sets good precedent. I'm coming to the back of the room. Those who are still alive, keep your hands up. <laughs> um, Uber has uh, started a few new programs, and, and one comment I'll make is that in Seattle, they've actually been very aggressive about in working on the intent of the settlement and as a consumer, um, I've been out to lots of Uber training, and some of the other people in our local guide dog users um, have also been doing this, and so they are really working on this. But they've also instituted some new tweaks on the shared economy, which is that now you can use a, an Uber pool. So most of the time when I'm offered a ride, if I take it from my home, which is near the university and a good place for pooling, I get offered a price if I want to ride share, even in my ride share, you know, in my place I'm going, or if I want the ride by myself and pay, you know, quite a bit more for that. And obviously there are times when I just want to get there, I don't want to deviate a block, and whether I have a disability or not, I'll pay. But there are other times that I don't think I mind, and Uber is not sure what's going to happen about the issue of this in terms of if you're riding with a guide dog, 
are you only able to take up one space all of the time? And are you, um, uh, is there going to be an issue if, if ride sharers um, don't want to share with the dog? And so has the settlement thought about any of those other tweaks that are part of the changing ride share scene? If it's all right with you, I'm going to combine some questions and let you answer them rather than covering the back 40 here. I'm going, we're not, I'm, we're going to get too much exercise. Sir. Okay. Um, in Austin, Texas, Uber is gone um, because they put new fingerprint rules in and stuff like that. We've got new Lyft, we've got new transportation network companies coming in, and we've got Fare, and we've got Get Me, and we've got Fastened. And Fare is somewhat accessible. You can actually do it, but you can't do it completely. Like you can't contact your driver and that kind of stuff. Uh, Get Me and Fasten are not accessible. And is there something we can do about that now? Charlie, l I think last question we'll throw into this potpourri. Is that all right with you? We're gonna Charlie, gonna give you. You're gonna get last question in, and then they'll run the microphone. Thank you very much. Um, I read the settlement, um, and I have to compliment the people who worked on it. It's a really nice document, very comprehensive. I think it'll go a long way towards resolving the problem. There's only one fatal flaw, I think, that's in it, and I could be wrong, so please tell me that I am, but nicely. Um, the idea that Uber has the right to tell its drivers, you can't do that. Next time you do that, you're going to be fired. That's not enforcement. That's only giving them a chance to you know, do whatever they want to do when you said up front that you train them, telling them they can't do it in the first place. So I just don't, I don't see that as anything worth um, supporting. I, I do support the settlement, but that's one piece that I can't support. I know there was a lot of questions, but it's the best way to do it. Okay, I'm going to work backwards if that's fine. Um, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't know if I quite understood the fatal flaw question, but um, if drivers violate the policy, then they don't get to drive anymore. Um, and while that's harsh, it seems to be what's required to get people to comply. Um, oh, sorry, did someone in the front want to clarify? Let's discuss after. Okay, my apologies for misunderstanding the question. Um, second, about Austin. For companies, it sounds like when you say accessibility, are you referring to uh, app accessibility for voiceover? Okay. Um, so there is a legal obligation to have the network be accessible, and if that includes having accessible an accessible app, that's covered. Um, I think a strong legal argument can be made for that, even if there are no specific regs out about it. Um, and how you want to pursue that legal question is up to you. A demand letter, just telling them what their legal obligations are, filing a lawsuit, that type of thing. Um, and then the first of the three, the question about Uber Pool is a great question. Unfortunately, uh, while we were shaping the settlement agreement, that wasn't an issue yet. Um, and we don't think it should hold up putting this settlement agreement in place, but we might need to bring another case or build on the agreement or modify it to deal with that issue because we think it will increasingly arise. 
want to thank Julia for coming, presenting to us, and I have a small token of appreciation. I'm going to have Lucas Frank describe it. Oh. You're taking a risk. Should I call him by name? <laughs> oh, what, should I call him by name? No, find out. It's lovely. It's, it's a, a, a pen uh, made of wood with uh, GDUI uh, in, in engraved in it. It's absolutely beautiful. Okay, so don't forget that Julia is going to be in the GDUI suite for um, as long as Julia feels like being in the GDUI suite, which is Greenway J. She was tremendous, so let's give her another round of applause. So thank you, Julia. I just want to say goodbye to everybody. I am actually going to a focus group with Uber, and I have a lot of things to tell to them. Um, and um, I'll see you tomorrow at Breakfast Club. Or you see me and Willow around, and if you don't see us, you're certainly here, Willow. So, thank you. Thanks, Megan. No problem. Hi, everybody. If you'd like to say for the inside and outside of your guide dog, presented by Guiding Eyes Extraordinaire trainer Mike Goring. It's in this room, in like right now. Are you all ready to do door prizes again real quick? Okay, we, you need a card?
your card for and bring it to all of the events, okay? Okay. Oh, I thought you broke something. It's it's a playing card. So it's like, oh, ten of hearts. Ten of hearts. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Keep your card now for all of the events, okay? Okay. And then we have to give you back, right? If you win. Yeah, and if you if you don't win, we want them back before you. Yeah, do. yeah. yeah. You okay. can bring it to the suite or do it at the lunch. <coughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. Oh, it's just a group of people to get together and they walk to a breakfast place to eat every morning. Okay, here we go. First, we have, first of all, let me tell you, we have four red, white, and blue flag-like bandanas for the dogs. Not you, for your dogs. And that's what we're going to give away. So, first off, we have the uh, four of spades. Got a winner in the back there. Ace of clubs, raise your hand. All right. And we have 10 of spades. That was very quick. All right. Thank you all. We'll be back. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, my name's Mike Gehring. I'm a field representative and instructor with Guiding Eyes for the Blind. I've been with that school for uh, my ninth year. Prior to that, I did uh, 18, spent 18 years in the service dog field. I can try to do that better. Thank you. I've been, uh, so I spend Nine years with Guiding Eyes as a field uh, field representative. I've been with, uh, prior to that, I was 18 years with a school called Service Dogs for America and uh, t- training service dogs. The presentation I'm going to do today is a little bit on the fun side. We just want to talk about uh, dogs, guide dogs specifically, things that influence your dog from the inside and out, uh, and where, that, uh, where the presentation got its title. Uh, we can also let this take a turn if we want. Uh, some people I know have mentioned earlier in the conference uh, have talked a little bit about roundabouts, um, a presentation that I put together a couple years ago and I'm doing some work with uh, guide dogs and roundabouts. We're seeing uh, outcropping of those. So later in the program, if you have questions regarding uh, roundabout stuff, we can get into that during the Q&A portion of this as well. So um, I am fine with things taking an odd turn. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> So with that, we'll get started. I want to talk a little bit about your dog, uh, how dogs see, how your dog's eyes work, what your dog is seeing out there um, when he's working. This covers the component of uh, inside of your dog. So as compared to human vision, a dog's color spectrum is much different. 
um, they are missing the reds. They also see dogs see much more peripherally than in a binocular manner. So your dog sees, uh, he's seeing off to the side, not seeing as clear up to the front. He's missing the red spectrum. And there's also more of a two-dimensional than three-dimensional appearance to the vision. So his world looks a lot different um, than ours does when we're fully functional uh, with our vision. Something to keep in mind as we trainers, it's really important for us because as we're moving along and as we're working with our dogs, there's some things that seem very evident to us and to our dogs, they're not at all. Um, so important little tidbit to understand. Uh, when we're looking at, for instance, a spectrum of green or red tomatoes, uh, there's a, a PowerPoint slide that we use to demonstrate this. From green to yellow into the orange and ripen spectrum, and a dog's looking at that, that all blends together. That basically in a dog's world, whereas to us we look at it and there's very apparently very different range of color there in your dog's view, they all look very, very, very similar. So that significance di significant difference in how vision works between dogs and humans. Again, I'll and we would then we want to cover, too, on how the dogs see very much off to the side, and that's where we're, at, where we're positioned with our dogs. When we get, of course, you guys all know when you give your hand signals, your dogs are aware of that, and particularly with movement, your dog's vision is off to the side and behind. Not so important what's off to dead center and front. And then that nose. How about that nose? So as we as human beings have five million scent receptors in our nose. Sounds impressive until we get to the Labrador. 125 million scent receptors in that nose as compared to our five million. So he's living in a whole nother world. <laughs> we are nasally challenged as compared to him. Fox Terriers are in there at about 147 million. You get up there with the Shepherds, 225 million. A Bloodhound's up there at 300 million. So that note, they, with us as the human animal, we are very tied to our sense of sight and vision. With dogs, it's that nose. They live in, in that world. When your dog walks into this room, you and I will smell the most pungent odor in the room. Your dog walks in here, he smells every scent, every scent in the room. He's able to identify that. So for him, now imagine with all these dogs here, all the places that we've been and all that, what that brings into the dog. And we're asking him not to be distracted, what we're asking of him. That information is all running across his database. It's all running across, what does this scent mean to me? A dog's nose can detect the presence of extremely diluted particles as well. Um, some experiments, uh, teaspoons, mere teaspoons of salt in uh, 10,000 gallons of water, something so insane like that. Um, 
then there's their hearing. The human range from 20,000 hertz to, or for 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. The dog's range is gonna go from 40 all the way up to 60,000. So the hearing works much different scale as well. Um, on that high end, of course, they're picking up on things that we can only imagine. Um, on a distance, general rule of thumb, uh, a dog's gonna hear at 75 feet what we hear at 25. Ability to move the ears. So with the shepherds, particularly, they have that ability to move their ears independently and to hone in on sounds. And then with shepherds as well, they have with that ear design, they, they can, that amp actually amplifies sound. So they're better hearing with that. Uh, tactile perception with dogs. The Vibrisi, those whiskers on their nose. Um, within those areas, this little interesting tidbit, within those areas of the brain that register touch information, nearly 40% of it is dedicated to the face. A seemingly disproportionate amount of that is dedicated to the regions of the upper jaw where the Vibrisi are located. So those whiskers, um, people years ago, I know some people, groomers would trim those occasionally. Um, really bad idea. Dogs need those. They're using those for, for sensing the world around them, air current, air movement, that type of thing. Uh, the pads of your dog's feet. Dogs also pick up information through there, of course, moving along their environment. They can sense different things, including vibration and small trickles of electricity. That's been a thing with training guide dogs occasionally. Um, near light rail tracks and things like that. There's different areas out in the environment where leak small amounts of electricity and some dogs have been known to pick up on that. Um, in the matter of pain, dogs do uh, experience pain much in the same way that we do. Although they're not necessarily going to show pain as easily as we would because it's simply as them being a predatory animal, it's not in their best interest to be always showing pain. So that's something that through the years um, in, in dogs, through the decades, um, it was thought many years ago that dogs didn't, didn't feel pain and experience pain in a similar manner to us. Um, and today we know differently. They just may not, even though they sense it, they may not be showing it. Taste. Dog has 1,700 roughly taste buds compared to 9,000 in humans. So that, that explains some of it. <laughs> some of what we turn our nose up at, they think is delectable. So um, something to keep in mind, dogs are omnivores. They're not strictly carnivores, about 80-20 in their diet. Uh, dogs do have special taste buds for water and meat, but not for salt. Um, and dogs generally do not like bitter. Although I met a Chesapeake retriever years ago that didn't read that. Um, but generally bitter. The bitter taste buds are way on the back of the throat. Some dogs get good about that with, um, when they figure that out. We used to use, we use bitter apple spray to keep dogs off of some. Some dogs are really good about knowing, learning where those taste receptors are on their tongue and they learn to actually avoid that. So. Uh, I want to mention a few 
books to you for those of you that um, may be interested in reading more. Um, these books are all available on Audible, um, some of my favorite reads. Uh, the Genius of Dogs by Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods. Um, some new information out there in the dog world. That's been something that's been really exciting in the last 10 years or so, um, whereas it was once upon a time it wasn't uh, very accepted to do uh, master's papers and to do a lot of research on the domestic dog. Um, Brian Hare kind of turned that around out of Duke University. Um, that's now something that's more and more in vogue, and we're learning more and more about dogs and actually how it works, uh, how their minds work and that type of thing. Years ago, trainers used to sit around and in conversation amongst trainers, a lot of us were speculating. The conversations would be, well, I think a dog learns like this, and I use this method of training, and it seems to be successful, therefore I must, must be right. I think a lot of that, as we look back on it, is just a testimony to the dogs and how adaptable they were and able to work with our various training methodologies um, through the years. We know now, in the last 10 years or so, um, Brian Harris' work, um, Gregory Burns uh, wrote the book, How Dogs Love Us. It's another really good book. Um, Gregory is a, a research scientist at Emory University and uh, got the first ima functional images of a dog's brain, functional MRIs um, of a dog's brain while he was receiving commands. This is a really fascinating book. I encourage anybody to read it. It's a very well-written book. Um, Dr. Burns himself is not a dog trainer, but he built a mock-up of an MRI machine in his living room, which is testimony to his wife's tolerance, too, <laughs> and taught his dog, his pet dog, with the help of a private trainer, to go up into a MRI machine and lay motionless with only clearance of a couple millimeters up and down and side to side in order to have functional uh, good pictures. And was able to teach his dog to go in it. He refused to sedate his, he didn't want to sedate the dog, so he didn't uh, sedate the dog and they didn't tether dogs or tie the dog down to do these tests. And as he, they, so what they were watching was as he gave hand signals, which meant, in, which meant tasks to the dog, they were watching what areas of the brain would light up. And so that was, and that's going on to this day. There's some of the guide dog schools, um, as well as some service dog schools are participating in studies with that. Um, I talked to one of the um, instructor friends of mine with CK9 Companions, and uh, he was very excited. He's like, this is just amazing. He said, we've got pictures of puppies' brains um, as they're being taught and trained information. We've got images of veteran service dogs that have been out there working for years. We've got tons of data. We're not sure what any of it means yet. But we've got tons of pictures. So, but it's a really exciting time because we're starting to move past um, how we think a dog learns and we're being able to actually look at how a dog learns. And that's some of the changes that you're all seeing as particularly those of you that are veteran guide dog handlers from when you may have gotten a dog you know, 20 years ago or, or longer and how the training has changed from then to now. I was just talking to a, a one of our longtime grads at Guiding Eyes who's had guide dogs since he was, since 1975. 
and um, the changes that have gone on since then. So you're seeing now today, you're seeing this movement towards more um, what's being known as more positive-based training, more inducement-based training methodologies, and less reliance on what was the heavier-handed um, training techniques of yesteryear. Um, and some of these books and some of these results um, of studies is why, um, because we're seeing how, how dogs actually learn. A um, couple great books for those of you that want to know more about your dogs, How Dogs Think by Stanley Korn and Do Dogs Dream by Stanley Korn. Actually, anything by Stanley Korn is worth reading, um, but those are two of my favorites. Um, sheds a lot of light on, on dogs. Um, another interesting book by John Bradshaw is Dog Sense. There's some good information there. So there's some titles, and if you want to title those books later on, or I can provide them uh, to Caitlin as well. If you just want to share those, so sure. Um, so in those books, they talk about we talk about things that dogs are deductive reasoning. Um, some of you may have read the book Chaser. Um, it's a book about a border collie that's been trained. Um, at one point, he was well over a thousand um, items that he was able to identify different items. And one of the interesting things with the research that went on with that was being able to put named items into a room, put those on the floor, and of course they could send Chaser in there. He picked items that he knew the names of. They could give him the name of an item. He'd go in there, pick up the named item, and bring it out. Well, then they messed with it a little bit, and they put an item in the room that he never saw before, along with items that he did know. And they gave him a command to go get the item, a word he'd never heard before. And he was able to associate the item that he hadn't heard be seen before with a word he never heard before. So that tells us something about dogs that are a little smarter than at least we once gave them credit for. And um, reading symbols is also something that's come into play. Um, there's been more work doing that where dogs, we played with this at, a serv at my service dog school, service dog school I worked at years ago. Um, we were playing with that and further research has been done with that as well now and able to flash um, a round circle. For instance, you can have a round circle on a per, uh, computer screen. And we were doing this at the service dog school. We were doing it for some nonverbal um, people that we were working with and being able to give the dogs commands with symbols. So we were actually able to have a round, solid round circle meant sit, a solid square meant down, things like that, and the dogs being able to interpret those symbols and assign um, commands to them. Um, and then also solving puzzles without necessarily quote training. That's something else that's been uh, researched and Brian Hare's stuff has been doing a lot with that, um, with setting up puzzle type things where the dogs are not specifically trained to solve that, pu that puzzle, but look lot using things like deductive reasoning and uh, mirroring, dogs are able to do that. That was an interesting that thing that came from uh, Brian Hare's work or not Brian Hare, rather, I'm sorry, Dr. Burns, mirroring years and years. When I first got into dog training, I remember getting conversations with trainers that said mirroring was impossible with dogs. That was something that was limited to primates and uh, sea mammals. And in his work, he actually showed, he, there was one spot of the test, and, and one of his uh, research, research assistants actually noted it a couple weeks after the initial research was done that they were watching when he was about to give 
the dog was anticipating when he was about to move his right hand. In the dog's brain, the, dog's, the area of the brain that would move the dog's right paw, even though the dog didn't move his right paw because he was supposed to stay motionless, that part of the brain was lighting up, showing us that the dog was mirroring what he was seeing. So that was proof. By, and it, I was elated. I read that while I was on a flight um, to somewhere. And <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget because years ago I, was, I used to teach, when I taught service dogs, we were teaching service dogs how to open lever handle doors. And I'd always walk up and flop my hand, you know, I'd always bap at the lever. And I had trainer after trainer tell me that that's not, he's not going to pick that up. And I kept insisting that he did, and they, they get it, they get it, I know they get it. And so anyway, I was justified years later. <laughs> 20 years later, somebody proved it. Um, so. uh, talk a little bit about that sniffing. Um, excessive sniffing and scavenging while in harness and engaged in guide work continues to challenge guide schools and guide handlers. It's not news to you guys. Um, in some instances, it is simply what it is. That is, it's the dog allowing himself to be led astray by his nose. In other instances, it's, it's displacement disorder, or displacement behavior, rather, I'm sorry. Um, and that is, the dogs can, dogs will displace stress through sniffing, basically them blowing off some steam in some cases where they're building excessive stress and they'll use that. So you can end up in a situation where you're walking down the street, your dog's doing some sniffing, you correct it, and then as you go along, he actually, you got probably everybody in this room has probably run into it. Then you're going, you go along, and he may move you around an obstacle, but because of his previous sniffing, you misinterpret that move as him, he, doggone it, he's doing more sniffing again. And he gets an inappropriate correction. And that inappropriate correction can build stress then because he got it inappropriately. He, wasn't, he did what he was supposed to do. Rather than getting a reward, he's getting a correction. So that can actually compound stress. Um, and just working itself, working in stressful environments um, for a dog. Sometimes you'll have, and it, it, depending on your dog, depending on the team, you have a stressful environment is different for every dog. For some dogs, they thrive in the city center work like we have here in Minneapolis. Some of them absolutely love it. They get in this environment, they're on, and they're just grooving, and they're in pedestrian traffic. The more, the better. They love it. And when they get into a relaxed residential area, that's more stressful for them, actually, than working in, in a busier environment like that. And they'll take more time to do more sniffing in that laid-back environment. And it can be conversely true. You take a dog that's much more comfortable working in a residential environment, and you plunk him to in a busy city center, and that can exacerbate. So it just depends. Dogs have personalities. They're all individuals. You guys know that. And so that type of thing can uh, actually make things worse. Um, so you all have noticed it's that knowledge now that Today we're using redirection methods more than we used to use those those corrections, those all physical corrections. And that's, that, that's kind of the why behind that. Um, implementing redirections, management tools, 
um, as well as in some cases still at continuing to implement um, some of the physical punishers that we have in the past. But much more emphasis today on positive, trying to redirect the dog's focus and reconnect with the dog. <laughs> can can some is there somebody cited that can Thank you. All right, back there. Okay. Um, so this this next this next slide on my power it's a on the PowerPoint. Um, there's a photograph of of a home training graduate that I was working with, and at the time I was trying to get a picture of the two of them. It's one of my favorite pictures ever. Um, she's standing there very nicely facing forward, and uh, her dad her dog was looking forward for a second, and then suddenly a squirrel scurried behind us, and. <laughs> So in the photo, she's looking at the camera, and her dog's sitting straight, but he's looking back behind her. Um, and I call that one, I am focused. Oh, look, a squirrel. Um, so out there, and that, it's something just to, as a trainer, and we're all in, and trainers and handlers, and we've all been in this field, um, a lot of us for a while, we kind of take our expectations and to just touch base on that a little bit about what we're really asking of these wonderful domestic dogs, <laughs> this other species um, that's at the other end of that leash, um, what's out there in the world that we call distraction. We call it that. That's, nothing that's not a word they would necessarily use to describe it. So we've got, for starters, okay, at this conference, guys are doing pretty awesome. Um, we've got other dogs. We've got other working dogs. We've got other people's pet dogs. I'm going to toss in there the alleged service dogs. <laughs> um, then we've got the uh, animals other than dogs that they run into. Some of them are predatory, and because of our dog's sense of smell, they know they can identify the difference between a predator and a prey animal. They've got prey running around out there. We're using Labradors. These guys were once trained for ducks and things. <laughs> uh, completely. And then there's the carrion out there. There's stuff that's dead on the streets um, that they come across. Then all the dog markings, aside from just regular dogs, but the markings of food items and then some non-food items that are interpreted as food items. <laughs> We've got animal waste out there. And in some cases, depending what city parts you're moving through, you've got some human waste out there. Um, you've got new environments, the moving into new environments area. You think about that nose. So you got this dog and their world is based on their olfact and as olfactory. 
So they go into a new environment, they go into that new environment, they learn it through their nose. They run all that data, those 125 million scent receptors. All that information is running off of their, that mind and it's saying, what, is this, what does this information mean to me? So as we go into a new environment, we're asking them to work, we're asking them to not be distracted, and yet there's their way of taking in the world. And there is something to be said for, in some cases, and I know in, in follow-up and field work, um, I advocate with my grads to, when you go into a new environment, allow your dog to be, allowing him a moment to take in that environment through his nose, and so rather than demand that he push into that environment and then trying to fight this scent thing, this smelling thing as a distraction, if you, just, if you can take a moment and be safe about it, but take a moment to allow your dog to get comfortable in that environment. Let him sniff a bit. Um, I've started creating some sniff spots, and, I, and schools can handle it. Every school's different on this. I'm not advocating any... Anybody try this without the permission of your school? But one of the things I've done is with dogs is where we do have, because when you go out on your route, when you think about it, our, our goal on a route is to go from point A to point B. And for our dogs, it's everything in between point A and point B. Because once we get to point B, in a lot of cases, particularly if we're going to work, you know, if we're going to work, we're gonna go in there and he's going to go underneath our desk for two hours. So his, his fun, like I said, is between point A and point B. So he's getting in. He's getting his fill. He's getting in all he can. So if we build in, I found that if we build in some places that are intentional spots where, okay, we're going to work from this place to this place, and then I'm going to give you intentionally a couple minutes of your time to satisfy that scenting urge. And then we harness back up, we do it harness off, harness back up, and go back to work. And I found in some cases with dogs that are particularly, quote, sniffy, that that's a nice way to give them an opportunity so they don't feel that they have to sneak in the sniff, that there's gonna be a time provided for that specific, um, to, to meet that need. I would touch a little bit about uh, training methodologies, and that is something that there has been, like I said, those of you who have been in the field for a long time, there has been a major um, change in training methodologies through the years, and part of that is um, us understanding better how dogs actually learn, how dogs actually think. Um, and we know now that by using um, so once upon a time, a lot of the training methods were based much more on compulsion. The compulsion-based training method is where we force the dog, that the definition of it is the action or state of forcing the dog to do or to restrain itself from doing. So I'm teaching dog to come, for instance, by using compulsion. I've got a, some sort of tether, some kind of tie-down on the dog. I call him to come, and when I, I physically in force that movement, I make him come, I reel him in. With inducement, I'm doing something different. With inducement, it's an action that's persuading the dog to do it under his own initiative. And that's been the shift, that's been a big shift in dog training 
over the years is moving from all compulsion-based training methodologies to what we see now is much more inducement. We talk about with the operant conditioning and the clicker training and that type of thing where we're ca event capture, we're capturing behaviors that we want. So we try to induce the dog, get to do a task, to do a behavior, and then when he does it, we mark that with the clicker, we mark that with a verbal marker, and then we reinforce it with the food reward as opposed to compulsive physically forcing the dog to do a particular task. So that's a big shift in training through the years as well. With that, I think we're right at 4 o'clock, so I'm just going to open it up for questions at this point. I've got a couple hands up. Um, somebody want to micro run microphone? Okay. All right. So I'll just wander around and we'll do it that way. <laughs> hey, Lolly. So have you heard anything about or read anything about there's a couple of people who've been working on concept training for dogs? Um, one person calls it, she's an Italian researcher, calls it uh, do what I do. It's the sort of mirroring that you were talking about. And then I think Ken Ramirez, who has taken um, on the reins of Karen Pryor's company, um, is, is taking that maybe a bit farther. I've heard recently that he's working on counting with dogs. Anything about that that you've heard? I haven't. I'm, I'm not versed in that at all, Ollie. I'm sorry. Did, does uh, anybody else in there, any other trainers in the room, have anything on that? I've, I've, I mean, I, I've heard of it, but I, I haven't read on it, so I, I don't want to speak to or misspeak. But the question I have, um, I've always wondered what um, the dogs learn in terms of language. Like, we use specific commands with them, obviously, like forward, halt, you know, about and such, and they respond to those commands to some extent. But are they more um, driven by hand signals and other outside sources as opposed to language? Do they understand human language or words in the same way that we understand them? Um, they I actually, years and years ago, when I was first doing, uh, got into training, we used to, a few trainers and I goofed around, and we used to use the same word for multiple tasks and just say it in a different tone. And the, the word we used was, ch well, we used chicken liver. <laughs> I should say chicken liver. <laughs> and it meant everything. Um, but we used to do this little demonstration where we'd show that just by saying that same phrase, we could get multiple different tasks, just saying it in a different con a different situation and with a different tone in our voice. So a lot of it, that's why with, with training, a lot of times the trainers are trying to, uh, when they're working with you, they want you to try to get you to mimic them as closely as possible in some, in some cases so that they're, you're replicating what the dog was 
taught that that the dog do isn't born with any. I mean, we know that from foreign language. People train dogs in every language <laughs> out there, and the dogs recognize it. So it's the dogs are learning what it is that we're teaching them, and we're assigning this word to it. Um, so so long as there's consistency in how it's being given. And there doesn't seem to be a preference. A, a lot of the dogs we want to work with as guide dogs, we, uh, all these, for the most part, these schools, we purpose breed dogs that, that want to work with us. So there's, th there's that within the dogs themselves where they're trying to, um, to meet us at least part of the way. So us using the hand signals, the more cues we're given, and that's like with our, with our turns and guide work, for instance. We have, you know, a lot of times we have foot movement having with hand movement combined with a hand signal all happening at the same time. And that, the dog is taking in all those pieces and understanding that that means we want to turn to the right or to the left. Um, but it's, a lot of that's testament to the dogs wanting to get it right, wanting to meet us part of the way. Back here. Yeah. Um, Cheryl and I work in, we notice working our dogs, if we work them in our neighborhood, they're kind of calm and slow, you know, relatively, relatively slow and, and don't pull that hard. When we get them down by the University of Texas or we get down to different areas, we notice the dogs pull a lot harder and want to get there more quickly. We think it's DNA, but we're not sure if that's it or whether it's there are other things that are really going on that, that cause that. Yeah, there's probably, I mean, home environment, you know, a residential home environment tends to present, um, because it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of old hat. Um, they know for the most part, they know the scent of all the dogs that live in that area. Everything's kind of same old, same old, and it tends to get rather mundane. Now, some dogs thrive on the mundane, and some dogs are bored by the mundane. When you get out into an environment like the university, there's all sorts of new things moving through that environment on a regular basis, one can speculate. So that's probably what's causing them to key up and, and drive harder. Yes, this is uh, Judy Firth from Dallas. Um, I've been using dogs for forever and ever and ever, amen. And. Um, I have always found, especially with my last retired dog, and I'm finding it with this current new dog, that when I give her a break, like, you know, you can sniff something, all that does is make her want to do it more, and then I end up having to, you know, so it's got to be nothing or, yeah. You know, my retired dog, what I used to, I came out of the ACB meeting, and I'd let her go to the park after the meeting, and every time she'd want to go past that same place, I couldn't get past the stupid thing. <laughs> it is. It's, it's something I've played with out in the field, and, and only with some specific dogs. And where and where I've done it, I've done it where you know I, I basically started the dog early, early in their career on that. So um, it's worked fairly well so far. But like I say it's nothing that's been uh, overall overall adopted by the school. So I'm going to go in the back here to this gentleman. I'll be up here. Hi, it's Charlie Crawford, and um, I have a somewhat of an embarrassing question um, for the dog anyway. When they have their accidents in the house, I know, I know they're supposed to be house trained and all that, they first get home and you s 
spent a couple of weeks with them on leash, and they pretty much, you know, behave themselves. But every once in a while, they may have an accident. And what's what's the best advice for people to help the dog not to do that again in the house? <laughs> uh, when it comes to, I mean, the first the first tidbit is one, once they do have an accident, making sure that it gets cleaned up really well, um, so that that scent gets completely eliminated. Because once the area has been declared a, an appropriate toileting area, um, it so stands. So that's a big piece of it. Um, generally, with parking errors, you want to, you know, it's controlling. It depends on, you know, it's a urinary, you know, is it a urine accident or, or otherwise, defecation. Um, you know, controlling the dogs in, you know, you, when you know what's going in, you know when what needs to come out. So controlled feed, you know, controlling your feedings, controlling water intake would be the first thing. Some t in some cases, free watering a dog doesn't work for that particular dog. Sometimes you need to measure out, you know, cups at a time, one cup at a time, two cups at a time for that particular dog. So you know when he drank, you know when he's going to need to go out. And then very scheduled, very frequent and very scheduled um, park breaks, not waiting for this. Something I run into, um, particular veteran uh, guide dog handlers where they're accustomed to a previous dog would let them know when it needed to go out. And sometimes with a brand new dog, that dog was not necessarily trained to let somebody know. You're required, the way we set it up at our school, you're, that's your responsibility to provide that dog with opportunities to go out. I usually recommend all day long with a new dog, every two hours, provide him with an opportunity to relieve himself, and then over time, eliminate which park opportunities he's not using. And then you're gonna get down to a regular schedule. Does that make sense? So I mean, it's basically, it, I'm a control enthusiast, and um, control. Controlled waterings, controlled feedings, and then controlled park opportunities. Several different products out there. Um, pop into Petco, any of those places. They've got several different things out there. There's a bunch of different ones. Yeah, Chewy.com's got stuff. Um, how are we doing time-wise? One more question. Who's got it? Did I answer everybody's questions? Oh, over here. That's you. Okay. I heard something, oh, my name is Eva, by the way. I heard something about um, scientists were proving that if a, a owner is real bonded with their dog and they sleep, not necessarily in the same bed, but they're sleeping in the same room, their heartbeats are in sync with each other? Um, I've heard some things on that. I haven't read a ton on it, and I really don't, I really can't speak to it, sorry. Here. Okay, so that's our last question, and um, thank you all very, very much. Enjoy your evening.